many of my family members are Social Security recipients. Uh, but we're in trouble right now. The funding is not adequate. Our systems, we struggle with. When I was there, one of my priorities was to modernize the systems. One of my theories was we didn't modernize the system. We still have the old legacy systems that don't talk to one another. Uh, the most complex program that we administer, which is the Supplemental Security Income Program for the Poor and Disabled, is still not automated. You cannot apply, even if you wanted to, online for SSI. Uh, and yet these are the most vulnerable. Uh, these are the people that are not being served now because they need to come into the field office and the field offices are closed. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. March marks Women's History Month, and in this episode, I'm looking forward to talking with Carolyn Colvin, a fellow of the Academy who's been an advocate for women throughout her career and has received several awards, including 50 Women to Watch and Maryland's Top 100 Women. Carolyn's career has spanned the local and state levels where she has led departments of human services and the federal level as the commissioner for the U.S. Social Security Administration. Carolyn, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, Terry, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I just, you know, teased a little bit about your remarkable career in the intro. Tell us what drew you to public service. Well, I think I always had a passion for helping people. I uh, grew up in a community that was somewhat impoverished. Uh, my mother was one of 14. Uh, she um, ended her education at the grade school level because she came out to help care for her uh, younger siblings. I was one of five. And so we had a strong sense of helping and sharing. We also had uh, elderly residents and uh, other uh, disadvantaged uh, individuals in our community. And so I spent a great deal of time helping them, trying to help them to get benefits, um, trying to identify resources that might be available. And so that was just a natural for me as I began to look at employment. Uh, as a student, uh, I worked part-time at a hospital in the emergency room on the weekends and at a hospital library during the week. And it made me really see that uh, going into government service was where I could be most helpful. So you had a lot of personal experience, um, you know, on the service receiving side. You spent your career predominantly in the health and human services sphere, but not many people have led those organizations at every level of government like you have. When you think about the national safety net of human services, how well does that system work? You've certainly been a part of it. What, tell us from the inside what it looks like. Well, Terry, roughly, it still does not work well. Unfortunately, there are significant numbers of individuals who are not aware of um, benefits to which they are entitled. Uh, if they are, they don't know how to access those services. Uh, services are not well coordinated at the local and state level. Uh, and it's um, many times a very onerous process for those who have to apply. I see some improvements. There now is the ability to uh, take one application and identify other programs that individuals might be eligible for. Uh, and so they can be referred for those. But my dream was always that we would have one application. You would take that information and then it would populate and identify all the other programs. And you would not have to then apply for those individually. 
We're not there yet, but hopefully with technology and more data sharing, we will get there. You make a really interesting point there because one of the Biden administration's key initiatives is to think of government service programs from the customer perspective. So those things like you mentioned, a common application or integration seem like they would align with that. Tell us a little bit more about what the customer experience focus would entail uh, when we think about human services. What would it look like from the customer side if it worked well? Well, then we have to identify the touch points that our customer is going to um, have during the time that they're dealing with us and then look at what we can do to anticipate how to make that easy for them. So we need to uh, really identify uh, each area where we are serving a customer. Then we need to have performance standards so we can see if we are really providing those services in a satisfactory way. We also need to make the process less cumbersome. So again, I don't understand why we don't share more data. For instance, if we need uh, a license um, uh, to verify the identity of a person, or why could we not tap into the database with the um, Department of Motor Vehicles? Or if we need a birth certificate, why couldn't we get that from Vital Statistics? One of the biggest challenges for individuals applying for programs is pulling together all of these documents that they need to prove their eligibility. And then in many instances, we want them to uh, provide the original document. Uh, you know, or yet I've, I've done hundreds, well, not hundreds, but many, many settlements and I uh, do all of that online through DocuSign. There must be a better way uh, to enable people to apply for these services. So I think we've got to move more into uh, data sharing. Uh, We need to look at the uh, application process and see where we can cut out some of those steps for individuals applying. So what would make this system easier to navigate for those who need it most? I mean, you mentioned that people don't even know that there are services or that they're eligible for them. How can we do a better job of reaching them? Well, I think there needs to be increased uh, coordination and collaboration with the uh, community funded agencies, the nonprofit groups that uh, work with these individuals at the local levels. Uh, so that when they go in uh, to get a hot meal, uh, someone there can uh, talk with them to determine uh, what their needs might be and whether or not there are programs in the area uh, that they would uh, qualify for. Uh, We need to um, do a much, much better job at outreach. I remember when I was a student and working at Social Security uh, many, many years ago as a student, one of the things that Social Security used to do is have field workers who went into the community to churches and senior centers and uh, places like that and answered their questions, but also uh, helped them to understand uh, what they were eligible for and what the application process was. I think we need to see more outreach, a more partnership with giving grants to these uh, nonprofit organizations to uh, work with these individuals where they actually are on the ground and where they actually get the actual delivery of the services. You know, you raise a really interesting point and one that we learned when we examined the child tax credit program, where communities were doing that well. They didn't rely on people to find the information on the web themselves. They went to libraries and churches and community centers with people who spoke the language and were of the culture of that community to be able to reach to folks. And of course, Nowadays, we think that everything should be posted on the web, but that's maybe not the most accessible means for the people that we're trying to reach for these human services programs. 
I'm so glad you raised that. I think that as we become more digitized in the country, we have forgotten that one, many people don't still do not have access uh, to computers. It could be a bandwidth issue. It could be a cost issue. Uh, many individuals are not very literate in using uh, the online system. So we still have to make provisions for those individuals who are going to need help in completing the application process. We also have to recognize that many individuals are going to be limited in their ability to understand the process and they need a little handholding uh, to help them uh, to maneuver the system. So I think that we are certainly wanting to move our services as much as we can online so that those people who wish to do online services can, and at the same time, they free up workers, hopefully, who will then be able to work with those individuals who need personal intimate service. Such a great point that we just can never lose track of the fact that some of this just requires old-fashioned human-to-human interaction to make sure that the programs get delivered. Absolutely. To ask you about here is because you've served at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. I was just talking to someone the other day and we said, you know, federal programs are designed to make it easier for federal workers to administer them, right? They're not designed necessarily to make it easier for people to deliver the optimum services. So when you, if you could design this intergovernmental human services system the way that it should be now, how should those levels be better connected to really ensure effective quality delivery of services? Well, as I mentioned before, I think there just needs to be a better coordination and collaboration among the various levels of government. Each uh, level is very similar. It's, it's not unique. And so I think that if you look first at what is the customer experiencing and how can I um, minimize their the issues for them as they come into the system, we can begin the improvements there. I think that if you look at getting a one application uh, that you can use for all of the services that are available and you get that information one time and that is populated and uh, used then for all of the other local, state, and federal programs that those individuals might qualify for, that would go a long way toward decreasing the anxiety and the frustration that people have in reaching agency to get the services that they need. Also, because most of these agencies are underfunded, uh, they don't have the numbers of people that they need to be able to quickly and uh, compassionately um, serve uh, individuals. Uh, the workers are just looking to get the application finished and get on to the next one. And so they don't take the time necessarily to answer the questions in full. Many times an individual doesn't even know what questions to ask in order to be certain that they're getting the full benefits uh, to which they're entitled. Uh, the other problem is that uh, many of the people who are uh, handling these applications have never really experienced the problems that uh, the individuals uh, are experiencing who came in to be served. And so there's a disconnect there. This is why I believe that it's important for us to, again, have a better relationship with the nonprofit and community groups that are on the ground who are used to working with these people day in and day out. Many of them live in the same communities that these individuals live in. And so they understand what their needs are. They understand the, the language that they speak. When I said the language they speak, I'm talking about just how to better communicate with them. One of the things that I experienced in Social Security was that we had 
many of our um, senior level staff making policy decisions and uh, determining the systems and how service should be delivered had never worked in the field office and vice versa. Those in the field had never worked in um, headquarters. And so I began an exchange program so that we could have people coming into uh, Central from the field who could help Central understand how some of the processes and procedures that they were putting in place just would not work. Vice versa, having individuals at headquarters go out and see on the ground of the real live experiences that the field workers were experiencing. That's so important because we really lost that rotational assignment ability and people grow up their whole lives in one level of government, never really having the chance to know how the other side lives, I guess. The other problem is that these programs are so complex. You cannot walk in the door today and understand the program. Uh, It takes intensive training uh, and it takes time for individuals to become competent to serve the public. We have a major problem going on now because we have large numbers of individuals retiring and we don't have enough new people coming in prior to that retirement wave so that the transition of information can occur. So um, you have... An individual from the public calling in, they can speak to three people to get three different answers. And so they don't know which is the correct answer. I tell people to always apply. Don't take uh, a no from a worker. Apply so that you can get a formal notification that either, yes, you are qualified or no, no, you're not qualified. Uh, And this is becoming more and more um, challenging as our workers are aging out, retiring, and we're not getting the number of new people in quickly enough to fill that gap, that uh, information gap or that knowledge gap. You've just laid out a whole bunch of lessons learned in in terms of our civil service management, in terms of our intergovernmental integration, in terms of a common application for kinds of human services programs that you know, would really change kind of the nature of how we think about the human services space. I want to ask you, because there are so many lessons learned right now from COVID as well, it really tested our nation's ability to care for the most vulnerable. From your perspective, have you seen responses that were especially effective? And the flip side is, what did you wish would work better? But let's start with, what have you seen from your perch now where people really took the the problem in hand and delivered some effective solutions? Terry, I wish I could say that I saw that. Um, I have not seen that. The systems were already struggling. The pandemic just added to that problem. I have been retired from Social Security for five years now. I left in January of 2017. I spend a great deal of my time uh, serving constituents Uh, Individuals call me because they know I care. Uh, Even when I was commissioner of Social Security, when I went to groups, uh, to meetings, uh, community events, I gave my number and I told people to call me. Uh, Staff couldn't believe that I was doing that, but I needed to understand what they were experiencing. So I still get a lot of calls from people uh, who have problems with Social Security, VA, health care, any uh, housing, et cetera. And I have tried to intercede for them. And I have been frustrated because I'm usually on the phone for 45 minutes and finally they hang up on me or they uh, transfer me from one person to the next and uh, I can't get the information. So I know what the general public is experiencing. 
You know, I say, well, if I identify myself as former acting commissioner of Social Security and I can't help this individual, how does the individual who doesn't have a Carolyn to call prevail? How do they get the services that they need? And I've seen it in the local government. In fact, I'm dealing with a problem right now where someone is in a desperate emergency situation and I have not been able to get the assistance. So I've not seen the safety net working for individuals during this pandemic. My hope is that um, things will open up now that uh, we have less concern about the pandemic and uh, that people will begin to be served. I think we made a mistake when we shut down government uh, and tried to make it all virtual. I know that it was important for uh, individuals to be safe, both the public and the and the employees, but I believe that there were ways of doing that without totally shutting down. Social Security has been shut down almost three years, well, two years, uh, 19, and now it's 22. Anyway, they've been shut down a very long time, so people who are most vulnerable who need the services cannot receive them. Uh, IRS, you cannot get through. Um, VA, um, they have a little bit um, a better record because they are using the e-benefit system and people can go online more easily and use that. But if they don't have a computer or they don't have the um, savvy uh, in how to use the computer, they still are outside. I love the fact that you now have a customer perspective in addition to the former commissioner of SSA, uh, because so few people, as you said at the beginning, really see both from the inside and the outside And certainly Social Security Administration has been in the news itself throughout the pandemic. So you just articulated some really important problems. If you were going to design solutions for this, where would you start? One of the biggest challenges is adequate funding. Uh, Social Security is um, very underfunded. Uh, I have to say that the staff there are some of the most competent and compassionate and caring individuals that I've ever had the privilege of working with. They are from the communities that they serve. Their relatives are um, benefiting from the program. They probably came into Social Security because they wanted to help and to make a difference, but they're overwhelmed. They do not have the adequate uh, staff that they need. When they went to the virtual environment, I don't know if they had the adequate equipment to be able to handle the calls at home and and do all of the things that they needed to do. So we have to find a way to do both virtual and in-person service. Um, And I I don't know when that will happen, but I think that I've seen some articles that suggest that government is being pushed to reopen. I've sort of stayed away from Social Security. Um, Being a former commissioner, I did not want people to feel that I was interfering uh, or uh, trying to manage from afar. Uh, but I have followed it because I love that program. I love the people that are there. And many of my family members are Social Security recipients. Uh, but we're in trouble right now. The funding is not adequate. Our systems, we struggle with. When I was there, one of my priorities was to modernize the systems. One of my theories was we didn't modernize the system. We still have the old legacy systems that don't talk to one another. Uh, the most complex program that we administer, which is a supplemental security income program for the poor and disabled, it's still not automated. You cannot apply, even if you wanted to, online for SSI. Uh, And yet these are the most vulnerable. Uh, These are the people that are not being served now because they need to come into the field office 
and the field offices are closed. And I think you find that in many other uh, situations also. I know certainly with uh, the local uh, departments of social services and the, uh, the local unemployment offices, they are really struggling. So you're describing a situation, I would forecast, where when Social Security finally does reopen its field offices for in-person conversations, they're going to face a wave of applicants and individuals who need to find out about these programs. So not only are they understaffed now, but they're not going to be close to staffed to be able to handle that kind of Rush. And that's a major issue because it takes people to serve people. I mean, even with all the automation, you still got to have people to handle that. And we knew that we were going to have an, uh, a surge of uh, baby boomers retiring. Uh, so we've been able to anticipate that. That's one of the reasons that we're looking at the solvency uh, issue, because we have so many people who are now retiring. Of course, uh, COVID uh, impacted Social Security in in a way we would not have wanted, but was probably a more positive way. You have many people who are no longer on Social Security because we've lost them. But it's a, it's a major problem. And then the systems, we've got to figure out um, how to uh, modernize these systems. I don't know why it's so complex. Um, you know, we need to give the agencies uh, multi-year funding uh, so that they know how much money they're going to have, especially for the IT area, so that they know how much money they're going to have from year to year and can plan. Because what they are faced with is maintaining an existing old system at the same time that they're bringing up a new system. One of the last things you want is to have the system crash and then you can't serve people, you can't get out the social security checks. So it's always a balance of what what new um, systems are you going to bring up uh, and uh, so you can shut down the old ones and how are you going to do the conversion? I'm not an IT technologist, but I will tell you it's a very, very complex undertaking, but I don't understand why um, corporate America with all of the expertise that they have and the major systems that they run, that we haven't been able to utilize that expertise to expedite um, getting these uh, systems up to speed where they need to be. And it's such a common complaint. And I just found myself thinking about all of the COBOL programmers that you need and all yes. of them are drawing social security. <laughs> yes. And that's the language that so many, I mean, the new people don't know, uh, you know, the new individuals come in and don't know COBOL. I mean, and we should be away from that. So it's a major um, problem. And the other thing is that uh, social security collects a lot of data, but in the past had not done a real good job of utilizing that data to tell them where the problems were, what the improvements need to be. Uh, When I was there, I set up a um, data analysis unit uh, that would do just that, look at the data and see how to mine it and how to then improve our performance in the various areas. But uh, again, that takes resources, it takes special skills. I'm not sure what progress has been made uh, in that area since I left. But that's critical if you're going to be looking at customer experience because you need to know um, how you're performing uh, and uh, what changes you need to make. And you need to do that uh, through um, being informed through the data. Absolutely. I, and Carolyn, I just have to say, I could nerd out with you on this policy discussion like for another hour. <laughs> but <laughs> but I want to turn our discussion a little bit to your personal leadership journey because we're observing Women's History Month. And one of the central points about that is the focus that 
having women at the table in leadership positions makes a difference. And so as you think back on your career, how do you think being a Black woman informed your perspectives and decisions in this really complex but important space around human services and serving the most vulnerable? Well, I certainly think that when you get in a leadership role, you're drawing from all of your life experiences, all of your work experiences, and certainly your culture and your background uh, cannot be overlooked. I think that's why diversity uh, in the workplace is so important. And as a a Black leader, when I went in, I was not interested in maintaining the status quo. Uh, I spent a great deal of time bringing in our users at the local level, uh, asking them about their experiences, what they thought was working and what they thought uh, needed to be changed. I spent a great deal of time uh, uh, in the community, talking to the community leaders and trying to understand what they were hearing from their constituents. I also spent a great deal of time uh, talking to our local elected officials to see what their experiences were, because what I wanted to do was to use all of my background experiences to figure out how I could make the system work for everybody, for uh, my community, but also for the other communities. One of the things that I uh, was particularly concerned about was that uh, we don't always have the information and the different perspectives that we need uh, in order to make good policy decisions. The other concern I have, uh, Terry, is that having good policies are great, but if you don't implement them correctly, then you might as well not have the policy. And there are so many people who are eligible for benefits that they are not receiving because they don't know about it. So one of my big uh, uh, initiatives, um, even at the local level, was getting out to the community, talking to the people. I went to the churches on Sunday. Um, you know, I went to the community events uh, at the local and state level. I was on numerous boards, uh, substance abuse boards, um, domestic violence boards, um, child care boards. I was on different boards because I wanted to know what was happening at the communities, et cetera. Now, of course, I was in the federal government. I was prohibited as a result of the Hatch Act from being on any of those uh, activities or continue with any of those activities. But I think that um, being a female First of all, you bring a different perspective than our male colleagues. Uh, you've been, uh, we're mothers, we're, we're, um, we're sisters, we're, you know, we, we have a different lens that we look at the problems through. Uh, and then, of course, being a Black female, we look at the uh, dis- disparate treatment and the lack of resources in our community. As a leader, hopefully, uh, at least I try to bridge that gap. One of the things that really pushed me to move up the ranks when I went into government was when I worked at um, one of the hospitals, it was so obvious that if you came in with a red and white card, which meant you received medical assistance, you were treated very differently than if you came in with a blue and white card which said that you were receiving your benefits through Blue Cross Blue Shield or private provider. That should not be. And you know, we still have that today. Uh, And so I wanted to change that. I'm not sure that the majority of populations experience the same kinds of things that I saw people in my community experience. And I wanted our programs to be transparent and to address those and to remove those disparities. 
So when you think forward now, what advice would you give women and girls who are looking to pursue and take up positions of leadership in the government? I would say we need you. We need your brilliance. We need your empathy and your compassion. There is opportunity there for you that you need to take advantage of. Uh, Set your sights on uh, what you want to do and and never give up. One of the things that I did, I don't know if you followed my career, was I always went into the organization, an entry-level position, but my goal was to lead that organization before I left. And so I went into the health department in a clerical capacity. I left as a second in command. I went into human services in a entry-level position. I went left as the head of that agency. I always believe that that's where you can make difference. And so at every level, you've got to let your voice be heard. You can be a leader in every role. And I think that it's important for us to say to our young people, we need your voice. We need your brilliance. We need you to be willing to work hard and to be committed to changing the system to make it what you know it can be. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for sharing your insights into the uh, human services system and your personal stories with us today. You've made a remarkable difference everywhere you've been. And so thanks for sharing some time with us today. Thank you so much, Terry, for having me on. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new episode from the Academy as we work to build a just, fair, and inclusive government that strengthens communities and protects democracy.